Okay, Jesse, last week's OC double murder was a total karma bomb. What's the story this time around? A toxic marriage between a celebrity and his, well, let's say entrepreneurial wife, leads to devastating consequences and a true Hollywood homicide. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about schemes, dreams, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe and review to help new people discover the show. Thanks again so much to all of you who reviewed this week and also our new patrons. This week, we are so pumped to shout out Maggie K and Erica L, Angela B and April, Diana C and Brooke B, and last but not least, Melissa E. Now, I think last week we had a fair bit of housekeeping. It was like, ended up being like four minutes, which is just way too much for us, Andy. So I think today we should just get right into the show. What do you say? Totally, totally. It was a hot, steamy August night at Burbank, California's Chadney's Restaurant in 1998. The jazz joint had a prime location across the street from the NBC studios and had once been a regular spot for Johnny Carson and his famous guests. But the years hadn't been kind to the old jazz club. Its best days were most certainly behind it. It remained a haunt, however, for many a once famous actor or musician whom you could probably say the same thing about. On this particular night, there was one such man in the crowd there to take in the jazz stylings of trumpet master Jack Sheldon. His name was Robert Blake, a once child star who had carved out pretty decent career for himself, still mostly known for his hit 1970s TV series Beretta, in which he played the titular character. Nearing 65, Blake was a bit past his prime, certainly by Hollywood standards. But in the dark, hazy smoke of the club, he could still pass for the tough-talking cop he had once played 20 years earlier. (laughs) Blake had mostly maintained his youthful appearance through black hair dye, a rigorous four-hour-a-day workout schedule, and a strategic nip and tuck here and there. Yeah, just, just a few here and there. Just a little bit. Yeah, the L.A. deal. One woman in the crowd was appreciating the view, and when she approached the aging star, the feeling was very mutual. That woman was 42-year-old Bonnie Lee Bakley, a pretty bleach blonde with a heart-shaped face and a curvy body. Bonnie was still relatively new to Hollywood, but not to famous men. She had a penchant for chasing legendary musicians of a now-bygone era— Frankie Valli, Dean Martin, Jerry Lee Whoa. Lewis. Yeah, she got with some famous oldies. She had fallen in love with Los Angeles while attempting to romance Dean Martin and decided to stay even after the Rat Pack singer passed away. Bonnie wanted more than just love, though she wanted that too. She wanted fame. 
And what she wanted, Bonnie was willing to go for with shameless abandon. When she moved to L.A., she paid $3,500 to rent a billboard on the Sunset Strip that displayed her smiling face and phone number. That's like very Angeline. It's very Angeline. Yeah. Actually, that's where she probably got the idea. That's also like three times more money that she spent on a billboard than I moved to L.A. with. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. And probably around the same time. Oh, well, a little later, you were like 2006. So she did this in case any enterprising talent scouts wanted to snap her up or equally great for her would be a famous potential paramour. She apparently got no takers. <laughs> she was looking for a celebrity, a man just like Robert Blake, who displayed his still prominent biceps in a sleeveless black t-shirt and smiled at the pretty blonde. Blake bought Bonnie a drink, and they discovered that they were both originally from New Jersey. She giggled coquettishly at his jokes, and he enjoyed the warmth of attention from the younger woman. Soon, the two were out the door of the jazz club and falling into the front seat of his SUV. In flagrante. Oh, they went right for it. Bonnie later said that she got in his car. She left her car at the jazz club. And that every time they stopped at a stoplight, they just started making out. He just like grabbed her and was like kissing her. She said that he was more horny teenager than 60 something. So this guy puts the sex in sexagenarian. Oh my God. But um <laughs> Bonnie was half naked before they even pulled into oh, the parking lot of the goodness. I know this is saucy. We're starting right out with like the Skinamax story here. Skinamax. So, yes, she was half naked before they even pulled into the parking lot of the Beverly Garland Holiday Inn that was apparently located at Hollywood and Ventura. There was no time to grab a room. Robert Blake and Bonnie Lee Bagley had sex right there in the back seat of his SUV. Amazing. I mean, there's room, you know. It's an SUV. He's yeah. not a big guy, too. You'll come to see. Okay. Sated and... Kind of shocked at the intensity of the encounter, the pair exchanged phone numbers and parted ways. Neither one realized that they had just put the wheels in motion to building a truly toxic relationship and that in less than three years, one member of the couple would be murdered and the other would be standing trial for the crime. <gasps> this is the Hollywood homicide story of Bonnie Lee Bakley and Robert Blake. So let's go back to the beginning and get a little backstory on these two lives that are about to clash calamitously. My sources today are the book Blood Cold, Fame, Sex, and Murder by Dennis McDougal and Mary Murphy, and a People Magazine Investigates episode from season five, episode eight. Love their work. Love it. Love People Magazine Investigates. And probably like too much People Magazine in my life, to be honest. Yeah. Robert Blake was born on September 18th, 1933 as Michael James Vincenzo Gubatosi. Oh, wow. Yes, he's Italian, if you couldn't really? tell. Really? I couldn't tell. <laughs> Said the half-Italian. In a working-class suburb near Newark, New Jersey, he was the third child, and he later told the media that he could thank poverty for his existence. He meant that because he claimed 
that his mother had already had two abortions before she became pregnant with him and that his parents were too poor for a third, which is why they had him. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Needless to say, it was not a great childhood. He was an unwanted baby that became an unwanted child, perhaps due to the rumors that he was not the product of his parents' marriage, but instead the product of an extramarital affair that his mother had had with his uncle. Yikes! The dad's brother, which is still bad, but less incesty. Blake would later make disturbing abuse allegations against both parents, but family members denied these claims and none of the abuse was ever corroborated. What was certainly true was that the Gubatoses did not have a pot to piss in, basically. So they were just about as poor as he described. Okay. In fact, Father James would take the three boys to picnics and other public events and have them sing and dance for spare change. Oh, man. Yeah, he dubbed them the three little hillbillies and tried to make them kind of like a vaudeville act, but it did not pan out for them. However, throughout this attempt at making some 19, you know, 38 version of Hanson, uh, just little Mickey, which was Robert Blake, was the only one who seemed to have any talent. And he seemed to enjoy performing. He was big into the crowds. He enjoyed doing it. So at that point, James decided to move the family to Los Angeles and give little Mickey a chance at the big time. Later, Robert Blake would say he knew we were going to be poor. So he said, why not be poor in a warm place at least? Cheers to that. Can't argue with that. Cheers to that. Mickey was rechristened the much more waspy and, you know, proper for the time name of Robert Little Bobby Blake and landed a part on the Little Rascals reboot when he was five years old. Whoa. Yeah, I think it was like our gang and then maybe Little Rascals. And then do you remember when we were young? Sometime in the 90s, there was another Little Rascals reboot. Yeah, there's a movie. Yeah, a movie. Yep, yep, yep. So he was like in the, I think, second iteration. Blake became a bona fide child star. He worked long, punishing hours on sets while his siblings enjoyed school and a normal childhood. As Blake grew and continued to book movies, his parents essentially took all of his money and he began to get very resentful, especially when his parents used the money he made working to send his brothers to college. Yeah, I understand why. 100%. In his teens, Blake had a particularly miserable time. So, he, you know, we all go through a little awkward period in our teenage years. So at this point, he was not booking any gigs. And everyone said that he had a real attitude because he had been acting for so long and he was making all of the money for his family. He was pretty arrogant in school and the other kids didn't care. They were like, you're still a pipsqueak and I don't care that you were in movies. You suck. And so he was bullied, at least according to him. And then his favorite uncle, not the one that was purported to be his father, but another uncle, was the only person that he truly felt connected to in the family. And that uncle ended up committing suicide by jumping from the seventh floor of a department store that was located at 8th and Broadway in downtown LA. Oh my God. Yeah, which is a brutal way to go and be discovered. 
Blake left high school around 16 or 17. He joined the army and he served for a few years before being honorably discharged in 1956. Guys, there is so much to this story that I had to edit out. I might put a couple things like on Patreon because it's insane. There was like this whole thing about how he maybe statutory raped a teenager while he was in the army and stationed in Alaska. And he tried to marry her by appealing to her father. And then he stole a bunch of stuff. But all of this might have been exaggerations. We don't know because he was still honorably discharged. Okay. He was telling these stories? He was telling these stories. Interesting. Yeah. So there's a lot of stories that Robert Blake tells later in his life that we don't know whether they were true because there was kind of a lull in his career at one point and he became just a regular on the Johnny Carson show. So he would go there almost weekly and he would just be one of their regular guests. And I think it got to a point where maybe he was exaggerating stories from his life to continue to have material to yeah. get to be on The Tonight Show. Yeah. So he said that after he got out of the army, he returned to Hollywood and he hit rock bottom. He ended up getting addicted to drugs and he became a drug runner to and from Mexico to finance his habit and life. Whoa. Yeah, pretty intense. He realized at one point, he said there was no real rock bottom moment other than he realized at one point that he was not attracting like quality broads and he wanted to end up meeting some nice women again. And he thought the best way to get chicks is to go back to his former profession and become a movie star. He rededicated himself to his craft and he began to get small roles in major motion pictures. Blake did, however, become frustrated and bitter, though, because he was often passed over for lead roles because he was not a big guy, which, you know, is not a big thing in Hollywood. There's a million actors. There's also a million Apple boxes to put him up on. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> he was 5'4". He was pretty wiry, but he was very intense in the face. Like, you could see how he was, like, kind of interesting looking, but I wouldn't say conventionally attractive. And those roles always went to big, blonde, blue-eyed Adonis types. Yep. I mean, we're talking the 50s here. So that is the, like, Kendall time in life, which, I mean, we're not really out of. Still, Ken and Barbie still reign. <laughs> so he began to get really frustrated about this. And so he decided that theater was where he was going to focus his attentions because he wanted to be a serious actor. Oh, the theater. The theater. So it was during this effort to distinguish himself in the theater <laughs> that he met his future wife, actress Sandra Kerr. Sandra was an up and coming young star who would go on to have a long career in TV and movies. She always did bit roles. It's kind of hard to pinpoint what her most famous roles were because she was just one of those people that you'd recognize because she was kind of in everything. Yep. If I had. To guess, because I did Google this, like what her most famous roles were. She had roles in Gunsmoke, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, and she did do a year-long stint on Days of Our Lives. Oh, no way. Yeah. So she was in a lot of stuff. She was acting up until 2017, too. So wow. she was active recently. The couple had an intense and turbulent marriage that produced two children. Son Noah was born in 1965 and daughter Delina in 1966. That's a cute name. I love Delina. Delina's pretty dope, too. We'll talk more about her later. 
Noah would grow up to follow in his parents' footsteps to acting, while Delina would go on to become a psychologist specializing in marriage and family therapy. Awesome. Which this totally tracks. If you grew up with two insane actor parents who are just a case study in dysfunction, yeah, it makes sense that one becomes an actor and one becomes a marriage and family therapist. Yeah. Around the time that Delina was born, Blake also landed his most critically acclaimed film role in the movie In Cold Blood based on the famous true crime novel by Truman Capote. The book and subsequent film detailed the home invasion murders of four members of the Clutter family in 1959, Kansas, by two ex-cons, which is a total classic. Robert Blake played murderer Perry Smith, whom he had a startling resemblance to. Wow, they look alike. And apparently Perry Smith was also a little guy. Well, this was a professional success, Blake was not a success at home. He was a method actor, meaning he stayed in character all of the time, which you can imagine if he's playing a murderer is not exactly what you want when you have very small children. No. So yeah, he was very unpleasant to work with and to be married to. Also for method acting, it really can't, that cap can't come off at home with your kids. I thought that that was just like when you're like on set, set. not on camera, you're still in character. He made some comments to the press that he had to thank his wife because he fully was inhabited by the murderer, Perry Smith, and he took on all of these dark personality traits while he was doing this movie. So it sounded deeply unpleasant to be around him. Yeah, I'd say. And I think that a characteristic of Robert Blake's life was that he was constantly dissatisfied with the applause that he was getting. He always wanted more. He always wanted to be recognized as a better actor, as somebody who was superior, and it was never happening. And he always felt like it was because he was being discriminated against. Like, he even told his kids, like, you know, those neighbors over there, they don't like us because you're Italian and Russian, because Sandra was originally Russian. And changed her name as well. Yeah. I mean, I feel like sometimes with artists in general, that's they constantly live in that, like, never satisfied with their accomplishments. Yeah. Yeah. They need more attention, more accolades. And that was also probably a product of him being a child star where everything that he was ever rewarded for was performance-based and what somebody could do for him and what money he was making. And that was probably the only time he felt any worth value. Yeah, exactly. So despite the fact that his portrayal of this murderer was very critically acclaimed, he was really upset that it wasn't recognized by the Academy. He did not get an Oscar nomination in that role or a Golden Globe. He followed up in Cold Blood with other movie roles, but like I said, gained a reputation of being extremely difficult to work with. And he wasn't a peach at home. So son Noah later said, that as far back as he could remember, his parents were either screaming at each other or warring with the neighbors. Oh, God. Both of my parents, he said, I quote, required a lot of attention and required a lot of spotlight time. I don't think that there was a lot of room for children. That's sad. After a dry spell in movies and a two-week-long hospitalization due to a nervous breakdown, Blake decided to try TV acting. Now, this is still in the 70s. This is in the era that you don't downgrade from movies to TV. 
how things have changed. How things have changed. Baby, if you're not in a Netflix series, what are you even doing with your life? Yeah. So at this point, he was like, after not getting these roles that he wanted and not getting the attention he wanted for the roles that he felt like he was doing a really good job for, he had this nervous breakdown and his agent was like, dude, like, let's just put you in TV. You'd clean up in TV. You'll make a ton of money and you can stop being such a head case. So he finally agreed and he was immediately tapped to play the lead in Beretta, a detective series about a macho cop named Tony Beretta who solved crime with his yellow-crested cockatoo Fred. (laughs) So 70s. So 70s. Extras and guest actors recalled that Blake was a nightmare to work with. Oh, no. Apparently also because this was his series and it became a hit. He became a little Napoleon on set and he fired at will. Somebody could look at him and he'd be like, that guy's off the set. And then they'd have to like shut down while they tried to find another background actor to put in the spot of the guy he just fired. Yeah. And so it was a lot. They only act that way if you give them the power to act that way, though. I know. They're like toddlers. You got to put them in their place. Yeah. (laughs) You need a timeout. (laughs) So despite this bad behavior on set, the show became a huge hit. People loved it. At 40 years old, Robert Blake was at the height of his professional career. He won an Emmy and a Golden Globe for his work on Beretta. And he told the media that he was doing the best he had ever done financially. He said that he was making $35,000 a week. And This is 1974, so that would be the equivalent of, like, 200 grand a week. That's actually insane. You know what the lesson is to take away from all of this is that everyone loves a bird. 100% and a detective. And a detective and a bird. Combo. Solving crime. combo. I mean, done. Also, how the fuck does a bird solve a crime? Reboot Beretta, baby. Let's do it. Love Murder (laughs) presents. Oh, my God. Beretta, this time with cats. Cats would not be interested in solving No, no. So despite the fact that this was a critical and commercial success, ratings did begin to slide by the third season. And Robert Blake decided to end the series to go out on top. He didn't want to do the thing where it got worse and worse and worse. And people were like, oh, just kill it, you know? Yeah. When Beretta ended, so did the Blake's 15-year marriage. The divorce was not amicable. From what I read, Blake still loved Sandra and he wanted to be with her and he wanted to try to win her back, but she very rightfully escaped his abusive and controlling behavior. He would do interviews where he would talk about how, oh, I'm just so difficult to get along with when I'm in an artistic space and thank God for my wife for dealing with it because sometimes I just basically kidnap her and make her drive around with me for 24 hours until I calm down. It's not a normal thing to do to your partner. And who watches the kids when you're having a... Who knows? I mean, Noah, their son, said that they weren't very talented at raising children, so they might have just left him alone. It's also, those kids were born in the 60s. The 70s and 80s were the era of, like, good luck and Godspeed. Try not to kill yourself. Bye. Now it's so crazy. So, yeah, she was over it. She wanted to get away from him. And I can see why when you hear about how he ended up having full custody of their teenage children. According to the book Blood Cold, this is how it went down. After Sandra moved out, he tracked her down and had her call Noah and Delina, who were then 16 and 14, respectively, 
Blake then reportedly forced his soon-to-be ex-wife to tell both teenagers that she didn't love them and wanted them to live with their father. What she did not say during that brief conversation was that Blake was holding a gun to her head as she I spoke. I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. So Blake and the teenagers moved to a horse ranch in Studio City that he dubbed the Matahari Ranch. Sandra found her own support with a group of famous men's ex-wives. Now, this, this was a while ago, so our listeners who are like our age and younger probably might not know who these people are. But I loved this. They called the, the group LADIES, which was an acronym for Life After Divorce is Eventually Sane. Oh my God, I'm obsessed. Obsessed. And so the woman that started it was a woman named Marilyn Funt, who was the second of three wives of Alan Funt, who created Candid Camera. And then there was also the ex, the first wives of Michael Landon, Ken Berry, and Glenn Campbell. So this group of women, who had a great time, by the way, in Hollywood, was the inspiration for the book and then movie, The First Wives Club. Robert Blake hoped for a great third act, but he mostly had roles in television miniseries and made-for-TV movies after a failed pilot in which he played a priest. In 1993, he played family annihilator John List. <gasps> Shout out to episode 22 in the CBS miniseries Judgment Day, which is very creepy that he has played two very well-known killers. Seriously. By 1998, he was turning 65 and in the twilight of his career. His kids were grown. He still carried a torch for his ex-wife, Sandra. But she didn't want anything to do with him, and he was clinging to a time in Hollywood that was quickly evaporating. There were reports of Blake sexually harassing young women on set, and he had no remarkable relationships beyond the odd fling here and there. Well, all of that changed when Bonnie Lee Bakley walked into that jazz joint and into his heart, or at least his pants. <laughs> Blake would later claim that his relationship with Bonnie was nothing more than a one-night stand that went on for far too long, but others familiar with Bonnie said that there had been a genuine connection. They both had always been underdogs, strivers, steely with ambition and determination in spite, or maybe because of, their traumatic childhoods. However, as keen as Bonnie was on Blake, she was too savvy to put all of her romantic eggs in one Robert Blake-shaped basket, so she too kept a few irons in the fire. However, life changed for both members of the non-committed couple when almost exactly one year after they had met, Bonnie discovered that she was pregnant. And she was damn well having that baby. And this is where the trouble began. So let's get to know Bonnie because this brassy gal is about 10 pounds of trouble in a two-pound sack. Oh, my God. <laughs> Bonnie was born on June 7th, 1956, the first of five or six children, depending on the source, uh, Bakley children, born into a truly impoverished New Jersey existence. While Robert Blake may have exaggerated the hardships of his youth, 
Bonnie's were very well documented and extremely rough. Her father, Ed, was considered the town drunk, and he once famously offered to exchange one of his children for a bottle of booze. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so the book said that there were six kids, and I think that the program said there were five kids. In any case, only three of the children were kept by the parents. Two or three of them were given up for adoption. Bonnie's sister maintains that Bonnie was molested by their father as a child, and all of the children were beat regularly. For several months, the family called a garage home, like a a cold car garage, and the children kept the rats that resided in the garage with them as pets. In 1963, the Bakeleys divorced, and no one ever saw Ed again. Some years later, he was allegedly beat to death while in the Morristown, New Jersey drunk tank. Nobody knew any details about this, leading his family members to suspect that he had been mouthy to a cop and met his fate in that cell. After the divorce, Bonnie moved into her grandmother's trailer, but it was barely a step up from the garage. Her grandmother was dirt poor and as a result needed to be extremely frugal. Okay. So... She made Bonnie reuse water, wouldn't let her shower regularly because she didn't want her to waste water. They had to only wear clothes that were donated by the church. So as a result, Bonnie was labeled the weird, smelly kid at school. And though Bonnie will definitely prove incredibly street smart, she performed very poorly academically, which was another place where people bullied her. Early on, Bonnie vowed to become famous to get revenge on all of the kids who had mocked her. She just was like, I want to show them someday. Someday. I'm going to be in this magazine. I'm going to be in this movie and they'll see. Unfortunately, Bonnie could not act, sing, or dance. So she resolved to use her beauty, because she was a very good-looking girl, to marry a wealthy and famous man. And that was the next best thing for her. So we're going to touch briefly on how Bonnie was sexualized at a very young age. So if you are sensitive to that type of content, I would fast forward, trigger warning here. Marjorie, Bonnie's sister, told a story about how there was a nudist swim club apparently somewhere in the neighborhood of the trailer park in which Bonnie lived with her grandmother and how when Bonnie was 11 and Marjorie was six, it was a sweltering hot New Jersey summer and they were invited by the middle-aged male proprietor of this nudist pool to come and swim there. And so basically Bonnie was like, well, we're not going to take off our swimsuits. We're little girls. And he was like, of course not. Of course you're not going to take off your swimsuits. Fine, come on over. And when they actually got there, He's like, oh, no, you actually have to take off your swimsuits. Look, everyone else is naked. It would be unfair if you were wearing swimsuits and nobody else was. So gross. It's disgusting. So anyway, at this point, Marjorie was only six years old, and she was like, this is wrong. I know that this is wrong. I feel really uncomfortable. And Bonnie's like, it's fine. It's hot. Come on, let's do it. And so they did it. And But, like, Marjorie the whole time was like, I – no, I'm only six and I know this is gross. Oh. But she said that essentially Bonnie did not seem 
to mind. And this was, of course, because Bonnie had been molested by her father. She had already, at 11 years old, been objectified and sexualized. And she had had such a hard time at school that any attention was positive attention. It's so sad. It's really, really sad. And so Marjorie said she never went back, but Bonnie started going regularly. And she didn't say whether anything happened to Bonnie. She might not have known. So Bonnie was being conditioned to believe that her only worth was sexual and that her body was her only currency. She had no positive role models. I mean, her mother had essentially abandoned her as well. Yeah. No protectors. Her grandmother barely was keeping her clothed at this point. And it was just like a terrible way to be. She was essentially on her own. So she was preyed upon by grown men starting as a very young child. And I think that this is very important to note, given that she's going to make some very questionable choices that I think a lot of people would judge. And I do not think that we should judge anything that this woman does to provide for herself. I mean, okay, we'll see. (laughs) There's some things that go a little far. We'll get there. But I think for the most part, this was a woman who was fighting for survival. It's a good disclaimer disclaimer to talk about all of this. So Bonnie dropped out of high school sophomore year, and she attempted to make it as a model after attending a Barbizon school. We've talked about those. Oh, yeah. But unfortunately, when she actually tried to make it as a model, she wasn't quite attractive enough. She was like, you know, that kind of like small town, good looking girl that like goes to the big city to do the thing and it just doesn't really happen. Yep. However, she did find her milieu as a nude model, which was something she was very comfortable with after all of those years at the nudist colony. And she started making quite a bit of money as a nude model. In her late teens, she married her first of 10 husbands. What? Yeah, what? this might be a new record. Whoa. Guys, we are not going to go through all of them. I'm going to mention probably Six, I think, seven, maybe. But when interviewed, her own sister did not know how many husbands she had. She was like, I think nine. And then this reporter was like, I've checked all of the records. She's had 10 husbands legally. And her sister was like, oh, okay. Bonnie is something else. So yeah, so the first husband she married, I think when she was like 18 or 19, he was a handsome Greek guy who needed a green card. But they also had a legit relationship. After Evangelos Palakis hit the bottle and then Bonnie, she kicked him to the curb. According to her sister, she, quote, got his ass deported. That was not before she began a lifelong habit of secretly recording their conversations. Oh, my God. So she started in her late teens recording conversations that she had with partners in order to potentially use it against them later. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get a little taste of this later on in her relationship with some men that we need to talk about when it gets to the actual crime. It was around this time that Bonnie started what would grow into a lucrative porn enterprise. So she realized that taking naked photos paid a hell of a lot more than clothed ones. And she realized pretty early on that, like, she was leaving a lot of money on the table by letting other people take her picture and distribute her photos. Yep. Smart. So 
I think she was truly entrepreneurial because she said, I'm going to do this myself. I'm going to create like a mailing list porn enterprise. And she started putting out ads in the back of pornographic magazines that said, like, here's my picture of a picture of her. Like, if you want more naked pictures, if you want to write me letters and actually talk to me, like, send a $20 check to this address and we'll get going. So she was essentially the first, probably not the first, this probably happened in like the 1700s, but she was like an analog cam girl, essentially. Yep. In June of 1977, she was featured in Hustler's Beaver Hunt, um, which is exactly what you think it is. It was a nationwide below-the-belt talent search. I thought this was hilarious, but it might be awful, depending on your sense of humor. But she used her mother's real name okay. in the magazine next to a picture of her vagina. Okay, that's amazing. <laughs> and a bunch of people in New Jersey where her mother still lived thought it was actually her. And I have to think this was some like retribution for her abandoning her. Absolutely. Yeah. And she was like, no, I just look like her. We look similarly. Like, it's not me. Eventually got so bad that her mother moved to Tennessee to get away from all the people in New Jersey who knew her because it said like their hometown in New Jersey as well next to the picture. Wow. Like, here's our beaver from New Jersey. Our New Jersey beaver. <laughs> Out in the wild. Yeah, her mom was not happy. She apparently said, honestly, that girl has no shame. How she can show her face in public is beyond me. But she considers it a feather in her cap. And I really think that Bonnie was sex positive before such thing existed. <laughs> For real. For real. She didn't have shame. And I think that... There is some things that we should feel shameful about if we hurt other people, if we do things for our own gain that affect others. There's some other things we shouldn't feel shame about, no. which is our sexuality or, you know, what we do with consenting adults or how we choose to put our photos wherever, if that's our choice. Earn money to live. Exactly. I'll get into the facts and figures about what she made later, but she made herself a good living. Those beavers, they pay a pretty penny for those beavers, you know? <laughs> Hooters and beavers. I make a lot of money. Six months after Hustler, she married her second husband, and this would be her longest and most meaningful marriage. It was to her 27-year-old first cousin, Paul Gawron. Now, that sounds not great that he was her first cousin. Not going to sugarcoat that one. Pretty gross. But they had not grown up together. So I don't know at what point they reconnected and realized they were first cousins. He had been given up to foster care by his own mother pretty early on as well. So I think that by the time they knew this or God knows what, they just had already reconnected about the fact that they had both been abandoned by their mothers and had had pretty terrible childhoods. The couple had two children together, son Glenn in 1979 and daughter Holly in 1981, the kids were lovely. Bonnie's uncle George said to authors McDougal and Murphy, both kids turned out normal. I'm surprised. Bonnie was 100% the breadwinner, and she ended up running her porn business while Paul assisted her, and he actually was the one who stayed home with the kids. Great. Cool dynamic. She's like, 
a boss lady Larry Flint over here. I love it. Paul would have been helping Bonnie with her porn peddling forever. But then Bonnie began pushing the envelope. She started offering to meet up with some of the guys that she was corresponding with. And then she started into like the cons and the scams. She would say, I'm really going to, I'm going to come meet up with you. Oh no, my car broke down. I'm at like this place. Can you send me this amount of money somewhere between like $500 and $1,500? Like I really need this special part for my car. It's a whole thing. I can't come see you if I don't have it. Can you, you know, Western Union it to me? So he wasn't crazy about that. And he was even less amused when Bonnie actually did meet up with some of the more promising patrons. So she was literally the Tinder swindler before the Tinder swindler. She would have loved dating apps. She would have gone gangbusters on Thrived. Them. Yes. Yeah. So he, he didn't like this and then he really didn't like it when apparently one of these guys figured out where they lived and showed up at their family house. Ooh. Yeah. So he's like, not about this life. I don't think I can do this anymore. And at that point, Bonnie was like, I'm sorry. This is my business. This is how I'm running it. And you don't get to decide that even if you are my husband. So the two at that point became estranged. Bonnie hit the road and she would send a lot of money home. So she still supported Paul and the kids completely. And Paul did remain her occasional lover and business partner for the next 20 years. And they actually remained legally married for quite a while as well until Bonnie met an accountant slash astrologer slash Palisades Park record producer named Robert Stirr, who apparently was besotted with her. That was his title. And he at some point asked her to not only marry him, but he said that if she would marry him, he would record a song with her as the singer for a tribute to Elvis album that he was producing. So she felt like her ticket to fame had finally arrived. She obtained a mail order quickie divorce from Paul and was married to Robert six weeks later. When he failed to record the song or indeed make her famous at all, she divorced him as well. So after that didn't work out, she began touring as a groupie for Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis's sister said that she was like a dark, malevolent version of Penny Lane from Almost Famous. Oh, my God. <laughs> she had not great intentions. So, yeah, she started going hard for Jerry Lee Lewis. I guess that she thought maybe they had something in common because they both married their first cousin. Not surprisingly, it was a relationship that didn't work out despite Bonnie giving birth to a baby girl named Jerry Lee and even giving her the last name Lewis in the early 90s. How can she do that? She 100% claimed that the Jerry Lee Lewis was the father. Naturally, a paternity test revealed that he was not the father which in the book, her sister Marjorie is quoted saying, yeah, of course, because you can't get pregnant from giving a blowjob. Paul, her second husband, said that he knew it was his kid and he did end up raising Jerry Lee along with their other brother and sister. Okay, good. Bonnie had schemes on schemes on schemes. And in the mid to late 80s and 90s, she spent a considerable amount of time marrying elderly men in an attempt to collect from their estate or life insurance policies. Yep. So that seems pretty par for course. Oftentimes, she would gain access to financial accounts and drain them. So this, like, we, we've all been on Bonnie's team, but this is not cool. 
No, it's like conning old people. It's not nice. Don't do it. Like you can have your porn empire, but don't don't you can try con to... young young rich men. Like that's fine. Middle aged rich men are fine, but like leave the old. Don't people do it alone. to. Don't take their retirement funds. That's I terrible. Know. Husband number four was an eighty one year old man who had recently lost his wife of forty four years. Oh no. Husband number five was an elderly truck driver whom she got a divorce from after finding out that she could not cash in his life insurance policy. He later said, I told her years ago, somewhere down the road, somebody's going to kill you because you're playing everybody. Jesse, did you know that April is Earth Month? I did. And of course, that means a lot of us are thinking just a little bit more about how our daily behaviors or our buying habits could be a bit kinder to this one planet that we all share. Absolutely. But it can be really hard to know how to make a difference or even where to start. Yep. But sometimes when it's overwhelming, the best place to start is with a single step. For sure. Our sponsor, Rothy's, believes that even the biggest challenges can be tackled one step at a time. They take recycled plastic and turn it into some of the most comfortable, stylish, and durable shoes and other daily essentials. Rothy's has repurposed literally millions of single-use water bottles into the signature thread that goes into all of their products. Their commitment doesn't stop there, though. Their products are also made with less wasted fabric and are designed to be durable and washable. Rothy's is a stylish fit that lasts. The clothes you wear every day shouldn't just look great. They should make you feel great. That's exactly how you feel knowing your Rothy's helped keep plastic that would have otherwise ended up in the ocean out of the water. Honestly, you know, I work in fashion as well, and the type of materials people are coming up with, with plastic and different types of plants, I mean, it's just unbelievable. And I can say that Rothy's sustainable fabric is unreal. It's comfortable. I love the fact that you can wash it, and it seems super durable. It really is, and it, they're super duper cute, I gotta say. When you're wearing Rothy's, your footprint feels lighter than ever. Get $20 off your first purchase today at rothys.com slash lovemurder. That's R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash lovemurder. Okay, Andy, you know I love mobile games, but the thing they're always missing is a story. And I am always here for a great narrative. Yep. Match three games can be a lot of fun, but it seems like most of them are the same. The themes and characters change, but overall it's the same boring format. Until now. Switchcraft is a brand new take on match three games. As you play, you unlock pieces of a beautiful, magical, and gripping graphic novel. Switchcraft is a mobile game with a unique blend of TV-worthy writing, choose-your-own-adventure-style narrative, and thousands of magical match three levels. Switchcraft is exactly what I had been looking for. All of that awesome match three gameplay, but set in this incredibly compelling setting. I have been playing for months now. I cannot put it down. I'm not going to lie. It's kind of part of my like post-show ritual and well, I'm writing ritual and well, just about all the time ritual. <laughs> As Jesse knows, you take on the role <laughs> of a witch at Pendle Hill, the world's top academy of witchcraft. Play your way through hundreds of enchanting match three levels, revealing a dark and winding mystery story. It all starts with the disappearance of your best friend. Now it's up to you to unravel the mystery of her disappearance using your magical match three skills. Along the way, you'll find unique characters, a gripping story, and even a little romance. 
The best part is that your choices in the game determine the outcome of the story, so you're in the driver's seat. Download Switchcraft for free and unlock the magical mystery today. Want to hear something that's truly gruesome? Nine out of 10 Americans suffer from some type of gut issue. Gas, bloating, diarrhea, acid reflux. They're so common that most people think it's just a normal part of life. But with 80% of your immune system living in your gut, any gut problem can make it harder for your body to keep you healthy. And these days, the last thing any of us want is to get sick. Probiotics are supposed to be an easy way to support your gut and immune system. But according to research, 99.9% of the probiotics on the market die in your naturally harsh stomach acid before they even get to where they're needed. This is what makes Just Thrive Probiotic so revolutionary. Their proprietary formula is designed by nature to protect itself when conditions get rough. In fact, studies have proven that Just Thrive Probiotic arrives 100% alive in your gut, making them uniquely effective at controlling gas, constipation, and bloating, and providing much-needed immune support. It's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, histamine-free, and non-GMO, and safe for just about anyone at any age, including kids and moms-to-be. Plus, it's been loudly endorsed by some of the biggest health luminaries on the planet. So if you're looking to give your body the crucial immune and digestive support it needs so you can feel your absolute best, there's nothing like the award-winning Just Thrive Probiotic. Get 15% off when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code LOVEMURDER at checkout. She met all of these guys doing her mail-order porn business. So it was like lonely guys who were responding to her ads in the back of these magazines. In Blood Cold, they reported that Bonnie did not always marry for money. They said that sometimes she just did it for the heck of it. Somewhere along the line, Bonnie met up with a guy named Glenn Wolf before he died at 88. They were reportedly married at least for a few minutes so that Bonnie could join the 28 other former Mrs. Wolfs in the Guinness Book of World Records. When he passed away in a San Bernardino nursing home in June of 1997, he held the record for having been married more times than any other American male. He was survived by 19 children, but none of Bonnie's were among them. Oh, my God. I mean, if you're just getting married willy-nilly anyways, might as well get into the Guinness Book of World Records. Her biggest score was in 1993 when she wed an 83-year-old widower and then emptied $350,000 out of his bank account before his kids were notified. Oh, my God. Legally? I think that they arrived at some sort of settlement. Oh, my God. Legally, the man had given her full access to his bank accounts and all of his financials because they were legally married. But I think that there was some settlement reached. So I don't know how much of the money she had to get back. But it wasn't all. She got to keep Whoa. some of it. Yeah. She seemingly invested in her mail order porn business, expanding into a phone sex operation and hiring people to work under her. She employed her family when they needed jobs. In fact, those who knew Bonnie said that she was not the scheming, thieving Jezebel that she was depicted as later. She was actually generous to a fault. She gave almost every penny that she earned to her kids, her extended family. And even if people called her and they were like, my second cousin just got into a terrible accident. They need money for X, Y, and Z. She'd be like, here's $400. Here you go. 
Like she was apparently very generous with this ill-begotten fortune. Yeah, Robin Hood. Yes. Those who loved her appreciated her largesse, but they definitely wanted her to cool it with the scams. And she was also doing some phony lawsuits and she had all these like get rich schemes. And a lot of them obviously victimized other people. And so her loved ones were like, this can only end badly for you. You're going to get killed or end up in prison. Yeah. You've got enough. You you could just do the, the whole mail order sexy pictures thing and make more than enough money. Don't push it. But Bonnie just laughed off the criticisms and she jumped in her Mercedes that had a vanity plate that read, one R-S-K-T-K-R, which stood for number one risk taker. Oh, no. Wow. Bonnie had some trouble with the law as well, of course, mostly for passing bad checks. After an arrest on one of these occasions, she decided it was high time she went legit and bagged a celebrity to settle down with once and for all as her retirement plan. So somewhere between August of 1998 and August of 1999, when she discovered her pregnancy, she decided Robert Blake was that guy. However, like I said earlier, Blake was not the only man that Bonnie had been chatting up. Years earlier, Bonnie had struck up a prison correspondence with a man incarcerated for manslaughter. When she sent him some photos that I can only imagine were risque, and he replied rather enthusiastically. The man was Christian Brandau, the son of legendary actor Marlon Brandau. Oh, my God. It was his firstborn son of 11 children, which I didn't even know until this moment that he had so many. Yep. Christian had been sent to prison for fatally shooting a man named Dag Drollet, who was the boyfriend of Christian's pregnant half-sister, Cheyenne. Christian claimed that Cheyenne had confided in him earlier that day that Dag was physically abusing her and threatening her pregnancy. Oh, my God. While they were at their father's home on Mulholland Drive in L.A. Christian confronted Tag about it allegedly brandishing a loaded gun, which I think it's more than allegedly given what happened. So he was brandishing a loaded gun when he confronted this guy about it. He then said that Tag tried to grab the gun away from him. And when he did that, the gun went off. Okay. And Dag was killed. So Christian said it was an accident and they did report it to the police. Originally, the prosecutor wanted to try him for first-degree murder, saying that it was premeditated. However, the sister, Cheyenne, who was half Tahitian, also very good-looking. I like Wikipedia at her. She was gorgeous, gorgeous, sadly committed suicide later. So she ran back off to Tahiti, and they would not— like she, they couldn't subpoena her to come back to testify from Tahiti. So that was kind of their whole case. They didn't have any other witnesses to the crime that said it wasn't an accident. Crazy. So he ended up working at a plea deal where he pled to involuntary manslaughter and he got 10 years, but he actually only served five of those years. When he was released in 1996, Marlon whisked him away to an undisclosed location and Bonnie could not find him. But she was not deterred. She hunted him down in a logging town in Washington State oh. via a private detective. And she went to go visit him. 
So there they struck up a rather bizarre relationship because I think she was still 10 years older than him. So she ended up asking her sister and some friends, as well as her ex, Paul, which guy she should go for. She's like, okay, I got two Hollywood guys on the line. We got, you know, 60-something Blake. I got 30-something Christian Brando. You know, both seem like maybe not the best choices, but they're the best choices available to me right now. And I guess that her friends and loved ones were like, well, we don't love either of these choices for you, but you should probably go for the one that hasn't already killed somebody. Oh, my God. Probably. The, the not ex-con? Yeah. So according to Blood Cold, Bonnie decided to leave it up to fate. She was having unprotected sex with both men. And she started taking the fertility drug Clomid. And when they saw her taking these pills, she told them it was birth control. What? She figured sooner or later... She'd get knocked up, and whoever the father was would win the prize of marrying her and having their baby. How does she know? This is an exceptionally bad plan. <laughs> As all who knew her knew too well, Bonnie liked to live dangerously. Based on the timing, it was most probable that the child was Blake's, so she told him first, and it did not go great. In one of her recorded conversations, Blake totally lit into Bonnie and he demanded that she have an abortion. According to that conversation and Blake, Bonnie had not only told him that she was on birth control, but she had also eased his mind about them having unprotected sex by saying that she promised she would have an abortion in the event that her birth control failed and she accidentally got pregnant. Oh, my God. So now she was saying, no, I'm 100% having this baby and I want you to marry me as well. So Blake was irate and he told her, get out of here. I don't fucking care. It's probably not even my kid. He stopped speaking to her for a little while. So then she drove straight to Washington State and had sex with Christian to try to make it as close a timetable as possible so she could potentially pass off the baby as his. She's just driving back and forth from Washington to L.A. having sex with these two men. Apparently. This is not a good good look, Bonnie. So on June 2nd, 2000, Bonnie gave birth to a beautiful baby girl in Little Rock, Arkansas. Wait, why, why in Little Rock? She was actually stuck there because she had gotten in trouble for one of her schemes or scams or passing bad checks. I honestly can't even keep track of it. And she had been arrested there and she was on probation in Little Rock. So she had to stay in the state of Arkansas and give birth there. Uh, well, shout out to my family in Arkansas. <laughs> shout out to Andy's family in Arkansas. She named her daughter Christian Shannon Brando, as Brando had been much keener to have the baby. But it was pretty clear from day one that the baby was Blake's. She oh. looked exactly like Robert Blake. You know how babies come out looking just like their dads. Uh, yeah, I think I know that. <laughs> <laughs> My baby is still a carbon copy of Dan. So her family said, contrary to popular belief, Bonnie was not a bad mom. She just wasn't a very present mom. They compared it to like men who worked and provided for the family and traveled a lot. But she, she took care of everybody. She always sent home everybody money. And she visited as much as she possibly could. 
But out of all of her kids, she seemed the most attached to this one, her fourth child, a daughter. They said that she breastfed this child while she hadn't her other children. And she did seem generally smitten with her, whether this was because she was older now. You know, I think she was 43 when she gave birth. Wow. Yeah. So she was older, whether it's because she knew she was her last one. The baby was exceptionally cute. And also this was her ticket. It was definitely the child of either a famous guy or the grandchild of a really famous guy. So I think that all of those factors combined to make this her ticket. She continued to woo both men, wearing down Blake by sending him photos of the infant who absolutely had his face. (laughs) So Robert Blake consented to a DNA test. And of course, the baby was his. Bonnie arranged to bring the baby to L.A. so they could begin sharing custody and discuss the future of their relationship. But this was fraught because she was on probation in Arkansas and she wasn't supposed to leave the state. Oh, my God. She decided to risk it and go to L.A. anyway because this was her big chance to be with Robert Blake. When Robert met the little girl, he was totally transformed. I mean, he fell in love with her from the moment he looked at her. He was absolutely obsessed with her. And she really was, like I've said, a a truly gorgeous baby. They decided to rename her Rose Lenore Sophia Blake. Oh, my God. That's a beautiful name. Beautiful. So Rose was for Blake's cousin, according to the book. Rose is actually on the People Magazine Investigates episode as a now, I think she was 19 when they filmed it. She's now 21. She's gorgeous. And it's funny because the book says that she was named for his cousin and she said that she thinks that he just liked the name Rose, but she knows Lenore came from the Edgar Allan Poe poem. So at this point, Robert Blake was like, look, I've already prepared a $1,000 nursery. I've hired a live-in nanny. He's showing this all to Bonnie. Like, I'm prepared to be a father. And Bonnie thought that this was all excellent. So the couple decided to leave the baby with the nanny and go to a nearby cafe to chat about their future. But once they arrived, Bonnie was arrested by two police officers for leaving Arkansas and therefore violating her parole. So... In the cop car, one of the police officers said, hey, I'm like retiring soon and I can like make this go away for you, but you have to just get on a plane, go back to Arkansas and immediately report to your parole officer. She was like anything, like, please don't arrest me. I don't need this in my life. So they dropped her off at LAX and she did just that. She went back to Arkansas. When she got back to Arkansas, she called her parole officer and he's like, yeah, I know about this because... A private investigator hired by Robert Blake called and already narked you out and you are on house arrest now. Oh, my God. And the baby's in L.A. So it was all a ruse to get her out of the picture and get the baby in his custody. The two cops were actors, although one was actually a retired police officer who was now an actor. Oh, my God. That's so fucked up. Yeah. And the whole thing was like, it was like a a movie cop car. The whole thing was people he borrowed and paid and set up the whole arrangement. There was even a plan B in case she didn't buy it. Like there was like, they were going to like sneak the baby out of the house. Now at this point, he didn't want anyone to know where the baby was just in case. And 
there was a whole side situation where Delina, who is a psychologist, had reached her mid-30s at this point without having gotten married. And she wanted to have a child. And she was, you know, financially ready to do it by herself. And so when this baby essentially fell in her lap, her father was like, well, here, you take care of this baby. It's your sister, but it's more appropriate that she's raised by somebody who's of a more normal maternal age rather than he's 66. Delina was more than happy to take custody really? of this baby. Yeah, she okay. was all over it. She loved, loved, loved Rose. And also, she a- though, like the mom's not doing a bad job, though. Ugh, it's like it's very complicated because she wasn't. But at the same time, she used the baby as a bargaining chip like leverage. in the relationship. Yeah. yeah, in a way that you shouldn't with your children. It's complicated. We'll talk about it later as far as what she was willing to give up for the love of her daughter. But the other thing is that Bonnie used everything she had. She used every available resource to try to get what was hers and provide for those she loved, including using her children if necessary, which is not a good parental trait, clearly. So she was freaking pissed. She was furious. In October of 2000, with permission from her parole officer, she flew back to LA where she filed a police report accusing Blake of kidnapping her baby. Yeah. (laughs) And she delivered an ultimatum to Robert Blake. She said, marry me. Or the alternative is that you pay me $7,500 a month in child support, which is about the equivalent of $12,500 in today's money. Uh, It's so much money. So much money. And if you don't comply with my wishes, either doing one or the other, I'm going to go full bore with the kidnapping charges. And I'm going to go on a media rampage telling every outlet the whole sordid story about our life together and how you kidnapped our baby. Faced with those choices, Blake gave in and told her that he would marry her. They hammered out an 18-page prenup that kept their finances separate and even said that she was not entitled to inherit anything from him in the event of his death while they were married. And he said, look, you can keep your porn business. I keep my assets. We don't touch each other's finances. And the only thing is I don't want you doing your porn business on my property if you come to live here. And she said, fine. He said that he wanted a temporary custody agreement that he had physical custody of the baby until they hammered out a real custody agreement. She agreed to that. And she also, of course, had to drop the kidnapping charges. So when the prenup was signed, Bonnie went straight to the police station. She dropped the kidnapping charges. And then she went to the courthouse to file for a marriage license. Just kidding. He didn't kidnap my kid. We're actually going to get married. Happily ever after, right, guys? No, that is not what happened. So while she's all doing this and preparing for their future, he already had his attorneys working on stripping her of any custody and getting permanent full custody of little Rose. Nonetheless, the couple was married on November 19th, 2000, in a small ceremony in Blake's backyard, and he would not even spend their wedding night together. He made Bonnie go to a hotel where she spent the night alone crying to her sister on the phone. Oh, my God. I was going to ask you if there was any romantic element anymore or no. 
No, he was really pissed off. He was really upset about the whole thing. The next morning, she flew back to Arkansas to wait out her last three months of probation. And while she was back in Arkansas, Bonnie began to plan how she would win over her new husband and keep her little family together. Her sister said that even though the way they got together made Bonnie look like a gold digger, she had actually fallen for him and was per the prenup not getting a cent from him. He didn't even send her a plane ticket to go to their wedding or buy her an engagement ring or a wedding ring or anything. She wasn't getting jack shit from this deal other than, I guess, the bragging rights to say she married this guy. Yeah, and I guess security for the baby. Marjorie, her sister, explained that Bonnie's business was thriving. She reportedly had $450,000 squirreled away on her own. Yeah, so it's like, what? what's even the point of going through this? Like, go find yourself a hot young piece and, like, have fun. Yeah, she didn't need his money. I think that she wanted his love, but also she just wanted to fulfill that childhood promise she made to herself because I don't think that anyone really ran the pictures, but there was, like, a publicist who sent the pictures out, like, Robert Blake gets married for the second time. Yeah, yeah. So... This was the culmination of that childhood vow that she was going to marry a famous man. She was going to somehow be famous by proxy. Yeah. Her sister also said, and I think this is probably pretty common for people who have, you know, traumatic relationships early on, that she couldn't love people who just loved her. That if somebody gave themselves to her completely, she was like not into it. But if somebody was cold, distant, hard to love, hard to get, she genuinely fell in love with them and wanted them all the more. Yeah, the challenge. Yes. So at this point with Blake like tricking her, with him making it so hard, with him being so distant, it felt like an exciting challenge for this woman who had conned so many men just using her charms. Yeah, yeah. So while Bonnie was plotting to make her husband love her, her husband was plotting to get rid of her. Blake loved his daughter, and he wanted her far away from her mother's influence. Blake had been amused and even impressed with Bonnie's lucrative schemes and scams while they were dating. But now that she was his wife and the mother of his child, he said that her business was seedy, perverse, and repugnant. He was also still angry about being duped and then forced into a loveless marriage. He really wanted Bonnie to disappear forever. It was around this time that Blake allegedly solicited two different stuntmen that he had worked with on Beretta to kill Bonnie for money. What? Sir. Yeah. This is not one of your fucking roles. This is not a movie. This is real life and you cannot just bump people off. I love that he like goes through his Rolodex from Beretta and he's like. Yeah. And so he told these two guys that he was going to fund a movie about dirt biking and he needed stuntmen to potentially play these like lead roles because it was going to be about like stuntmen on dirt bikes or something. And he used that as a way to get them to take a meeting with him so that he could actually ask them to kill his wife for them. So these guys' names. Yeah. These guys' names were Duffy Hamilton and Gary McLarty. So with Duffy, he basically said, you know, come over, let's talk about the movie. And then when he got there, he said, actually, this isn't about the movie. I have to catch up with you. And I got 
snookered by this woman. And now my life is essentially ruined. And he tried to appeal to Duffy. He said, according to Blood Cold, that he knew that she had been bad when they had met and when they got married, but he didn't really know how bad. He didn't, he said he didn't realize the extent of her pornography business until after they were married. He said to Duffy that she was worse than a W word and Blake had made the mistake of having a child with her. Now he said that he was worried that his little girl would grow up to become a porn star like her mother. She'll have an effed up life, Blake complained bitterly. Um, being a porn star is not something that you need to be killed for. No, no, absolutely not. So Dovey said that Blake was like, I hate this woman. I want her dead. He apparently unzipped a gun casing and he showed him this 25 semi-automatic pistol And he said that it had no identifying markings and it was thus untraceable. And he said that if Duffy would do the deed, there would be a handsome payday of $100,000. It's a lot of money. And Hamilton was a little down and out at this point. So he did not say no. Blake took him for a drive around the neighborhood. He pointed out a nearby Italian restaurant. This was Blake's favorite restaurant. It was called Vitello's. Blake cruised slowly down the alley behind Vitello's as well as up and down the nearby streets. And he pointed out some secluded spots where Blake might park his car. And then he wanted Duffy to sneak up on the passenger side of the car and pow, kill his wife. Unbelievable. Yeah. So Duffy entertained this for a little while, thinking about maybe doing it. But Eventually, his morals won out, as well as the fact that one of the iterations of this murder plot was to have them meet in the desert where Duffy would kill Bonnie. But the way that Blake was telling it, he said there was going to be two graves dug. And so Duffy was like, wait, is he going to kill me after I kill his wife? Like, what is going on here? Like, I don't trust this. I'm getting out. This is creepy. What? Why would he say that? So later on, he pretends to have a change of heart. And he's like, I'm so sorry to Bonnie. I am sorry we got off on the wrong foot. I've rethought everything. And I really want to give this a shot. Do you want to have a belated honeymoon? And he invites her and her sister to Arizona. For a honeymoon with her sister. Honeymoon with her sister and, oh, his best friend, this bodyguard slash henchman named Earl Caldwell. And he's like, we'll all go together. It's going to be a great time. We'll go to some casinos. We'll go like camp along the Colorado River. It's going to be fantastic. And so later on, when Marjorie heard about this hitman plot, she thinks that the second grave was actually for her. Because Marjorie would have had a claim to take the baby. If Bonnie was killed, then maybe the baby so fucked up. would have gone to her sister. So it's super fucked up. But, I mean, on the positive side, the whole two graves thing freaked out Duffy enough that he didn't actually kill Bonnie. Yeah, so backfired. He offered way less money to the other guy, Gary. He, only, he was like, how about 10K? And I think this was because Gary had actually already killed somebody. Oh, <laughs> 
So he's like, you've already done this before. You don't get the whole 100K. How about 10K for you? So because it's the second up. time. Kind of like, this you whole know, once thing, you pop, you can't guy. stop. Oh, my God. Apparently in 1991, Gary had shot and killed a 50-year-old ex-con who had been crashing at his place. Now, this particular ex-con had a long history of violence and threatening people. So the courts ended up ruling that it was self-defense, which is what Gary had claimed, and they believed him. But no matter what the circumstances are, I would imagine killing somebody, especially if you're defending your life, is pretty traumatic. And Gary was like, fuck no. No, thank you. I'm not killing anyone. I'm not killing your wife and the mother of your child. Yeah. I mean, this is, he is carried away. I mean, I don't know if it's revenge. I don't know if it's, he thinks he's in his own movie, but he's on another planet. So this was when he then invited Bonnie and her sister out on this honeymoon. (sighs) Now, Marjorie was nervous about the whole arrangement. She was not believing that he had just had this big change of heart and all of a sudden he was in love with her. It just seemed very strange to her. Now, Bonnie was really wanted to believe this. She really wanted to be like, you know what? Maybe he did have a change of heart. This is great. This is what I want. So she was really enthusiastic about it. But the two still weren't getting along very well. He wasn't acting like he was in love with her. However, one night he did say, you know, I want us to get back on the right track. I'm very sexually attracted to you. They used to have a good sex life. And he said, I've recently had this fantasy about you, you know, taking a shot of tequila and then making out with me, giving me a big French kiss, and then, you know, giving me a blowjob. That would be super sexy. And he hadn't been affectionate with her at all. And her love language, because, of course, yeah, of her upbringing and everything else that had happened to her was definitely sexual affection. So she's like, oh, thank God he's giving me the chance to be sexually affectionate with him. So she was into this. She hated tequila and she never, they said she never really drank anything stronger than white Zinfandel. Oh my God. White Zin. <laughs> Is that even like less alcohol than what we drink? I feel like it has to be like to me like white zin is not rosé that's like straight up wine cooler yeah so she was like okay I mean if that's your fantasy I'll do it but you have to get me some rum like rum I can handle I'll do I'll do that so apparently they got a bottle of 151 Jesus no and they went to the banks of the Colorado River just after dark and they start, you know, getting it on and they're having a good time when all of a sudden she heard this noise from the bushes and out stumbles Earl Caldwell, his henchman, vomiting, just throwing up. At that point, Blake, who had been previously getting an O job, you know what I'm talking about? The old OJ. The old OJ. (laughs) The oral job. He jumped up like still half naked and went and consoled his friend. And he was saying, Bonnie said, like very softly, but she could hear him. It's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about it. I'll have somebody else do it. And then she saw that his friend had a gun. So she's telling this to her sister later. And then she tells it to two of her best friends on the phone. Uh... And she's like, so... I think he was trying to have Earl kill me 
And Earl obviously didn't have the stomach for it because he threw up. And her friend was like, Bonnie, Bonnie, what the what the hell are you doing? You have to leave this man if you think he's trying to kill you because he might have just failed, but someday he's going to succeed. Yeah. And Bonnie just sighed and she's like, well, at least I die happy. Like she didn't. That's what her friend said. She said. So I don't know if she thought because she accomplished her goal, because she knew her daughter was going to be taken care of, because it would have happened during a sex act, or if she knew that if she was killed by Robert Blake, she would become famous, even in death. I don't know, but... I don't know either. I really don't know what that meant. It was quoted in the book. She refused to leave him, even if it put her life in danger for whatever reason. After the trip, the couple returned to Blake's Matahari Ranch, where she was forced to live in the guest house. He wouldn't even let her live in the house with him. Both parties began to break the promises of their prenup. Bonnie resumed her mail-order porn business from the guest house, even though it was on his property. come on, like... He's not giving her any money. She said to her sister, like, he won't pay for anything. Like, I have to, you know, make sure I'm still self-sufficient. And Robert kept coming up with excuses why she couldn't see her own child. So the whole point was that they were supposed to be living together with Rose. And Rose was, for some reason, when they first came back from this trip, still living with Delina. And so she kept, I guess she was allowed to see her one time, but everybody was like hovering around her, like in case she tried to steal her or something. Oh my God. So everybody is not happy. This is not going well. It's a very frustrating situation. And Bonnie began to actually start to think about, you know what, what's more important than being married to this guy is being with my children and having the right to see my child. So she started calling a friend to try to figure out how she could potentially kidnap Rose back. Yeah, that (sighs) sounds about right. Yeah. So she's like, you know what? At this point, I'm realizing like this is not what I thought it was going to be and maybe I have to kidnap my own child back. And then the couple ended up fighting even more when Bonnie wanted her daughter Holly and Holly's boyfriend, because Holly's grown up now, to visit and Blake refused because I guess Holly's boyfriend had had a couple DUIs and he's like, I don't want them in my property, but this is, she's like, you're my husband and this is, our house. This is my house. I'm living in the guest house and I can't have my own daughter come visit me. So they're fighting all of the time. And finally, one night, Blake suggested to Bonnie that, you know, they had gotten off on the wrong foot and they had to figure out a way to make this relationship work. And so he's like, why don't we go out to my favorite restaurant, Vitello's, and we'll talk about this and we'll put this all behind us. And she's like, great. Yes, let's do it. So on May 4th, 2001, The couple went to Vitello's. They arrived around 8.30 p.m. They said that Bonnie had some seafood and some white wine. Sounds great. And Blake had some chicken soup. I, like, looked up where this place is because it's still open. It's, like, you know, 23 minutes from you. Oh, yeah. It still exists, this place. Oh, my God. No way. Yeah. So, yeah. So, they went to this restaurant. They ordered this food. They sat at Blake's favorite table, which was... Apparently number 42, a corner booth. I was hoping it wasn't five because that's our table at Guido's. <laughs> no, it's number 42. <laughs> and they ended up leaving around 9.30. So it was like only an hour long. And Blake was a, a very big regular. First of all, he's still famous at this point and he's a regular. So he got great service. And then 20 minutes, give or take, from the moment they were reported leaving the restaurant 
around 9.50 p.m., a shaken Robert Blake appeared on the doorstep of a stranger who ended up being like an actor director, of course, who lived like I think it was right around the block from Vitello's okay. near where they had parked their car. And so he's like screaming at this guy that he needs help. He's like, my wife's in my car. You've got to help her. You've got to help her. She's bloody. She's I think she's beaten. Oh, my God. I don't know what happened. And the guy was really freaked out because he's like is this guy drunk? Did he do something to his wife? Did he beat her up? And now he's in my house. And so he's like, you know, I'm going to call 911. Like, where are you? And he's like pointed to where they were. And while he's calling 911, he said that Blake was like, okay, I'm going to go back to Vitello's to make a phone call. And the guy was like, what? Like, I have a phone right here. And also, shouldn't you be going back to your wife who is apparently in a bad state, which was very weird. His method acting is not paying off right now. No, he also kept calling Vitello's, his favorite restaurant that he went to twice a week for like 20 years. He kept calling it Aromas for some reason. And we don't know whether that was like to throw people off or why, because he clearly knew that the place was called Vitello's. There is a place in Hollywood called Aromas. So maybe that's why he was confusing the whole thing. Maybe he didn't want them to go talk to the guy at Vitello's. So anyways, he said he was, he went back to Vitello's at that point And he said that he went back to Vitello's to see if there was a doctor in the house who could help Bonnie. So he went in and he's like, is there a doctor? Is there a doctor in the house? And he did find an off-duty nurse. So when she ran up to him and she's like, what's wrong? What's going on? He's like, you have to come with me. My wife's in the car. I don't know what's going on. Something's wrong with her. So this nurse thinks like maybe she's having a seizure. Maybe she's choking on something. Who knows? She's not thinking she was shot. No. And she she said it was really weird because Robert Blake didn't say she's bleeding, she's injured, something is really bad. You know, he was just like, something's wrong, please help. So when she approached the car where Bonnie was slumped over in the passenger seat, she could see that she was very badly injured. She was bleeding a lot. She was bleeding from the mouth, eyes, and nose. <gasps> and there was a clear gunshot wound to her right temple. Oh my God. And so she took her pulse and she started doing, you know, life-saving like compressions. But Bonnie basically uttered her last breath while the nurse was trying to work on her. And she was horrified because Blake hadn't prepared her at all for what she was about to find. So while she was trying to revive Bonnie, the paramedics showed up and they took her to the hospital but she didn't make it. Oh, I mean, she was my God. She was declared dead on arrival at the hospital at 10.15 p.m. So she, he showed up at that guy's How doorstep do you at 9.15. How do you, like, try to resuscitate someone who's, like, just bleeding all over? Like, I don't understand. I mean, we can't understand because we are not medical professionals. Medical professionals are the best people in the world. Heroes. Because, I mean, I'm sure that – we have a lot to listen. We have a lot of nurses who listen because I <laughs> – I know because I've heard a couple of them laugh at my bad pronunciations of medical terms. But yeah, I mean, for them, I mean, they're probably listening to this and going, oh, no, you just jump in here. This is what you do. You do this, 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 that, you know? I just can't even fathom. Yeah. So when she was at the hospital, there was an additional gunshot wound found to her neck. But the coroner did believe that it was the one to her right temple that was the fatal blow. So naturally, police arrived on the scene as well. and. They immediately 
brought Blake into custody because clearly this is super suspect. When they asked him if he had a firearm, he said, yeah, actually, I do. I have a concealed weapon permit, and here is my loaded 38 caliber pistol. Here you go. Now, it was clear that this gun had not recently been fired. So they didn't think that this was, it also would have been ridiculous if he just handed over the murder weapon. Yeah. He explained that he had actually brought the gun with him to Vitello's because Bonnie had been really frightened that somebody was stalking her. He explained that his wife worked in kind of a sketchy business. You know, she did dangerous things and she thought maybe one of those guys that she had conned or double crossed was coming for her. And so being a good husband, he carried his gun that night so he could protect her. But when they left the restaurant, they got back to the car, he realized, oops, he had left his gun at the restaurant. He had taken it out, put it on the seat next to them because they, you know, had the corner booth and he hadn't picked it back up. I know. I just like people just leave their guns at dinner all the time. Casually. Yeah. So he said, oh, no, you know, I know actually there was some other guy, James Kahn. There was another actor, James Kahn, who had recently- Well, James Kahn had recently lost his own concealed permit because he left his gun somewhere willy-nilly, and they'll take away your permit for that. So, yeah, he says, you know, I know James Kahn, we're friendly, and he told me he lost his, like, because he left it somewhere. So I told Bonnie, stay in the car. I'll be right back. I have to rush back to Vitello's, get my gun. He said he went back. He found it on the seat. He grabbed it. And then when he went back to the car... She was bleeding and he didn't know why. And he was like, oh, my God, I think she was attacked. He said that he didn't know what to do. Bonnie did have a cell phone in her purse. He claimed that he didn't know how to use her cell phone. So he said that's why he ran to a few houses in the neighborhood before he found the guy who called 911. He even grumbled to the police that he had to go to several houses and he's like, I knocked and knocked and none of these motherfuckers answered the door. Now, no one, not a single person at Vitello's remembered Blake having a gun at all in the restaurant. They didn't see it on the seat while he was there or after. And also, no one saw him when he returned allegedly to go pick this up. In fact, a busboy testified later that he cleaned the table as soon as they left and there was no gun there. Of course, you're going to see that. You're going to notice the gun. And you're also going to notice if this guy is famous and one of your best regular customers, if he comes back into the restaurant, somebody on the front of the house staff is going to go, oh, hi, Mr. Blake. What can I do for you? There's no way no one would see him slip in and grab the gun. Your story's not, it's not a tight story. It's not a tight story at all. Also, if he's so worried about his wife's safety, he really leaves her alone in the car. He wouldn't say, you have to come back with me because I'm worried about you and I don't have my gun now. So this was stinking to high heaven to the police. And he was trying very much to say like, what happened? Is she okay? Was she beaten? What happened to her? I don't even, what was that? Why was she bleeding? Like he was acting like he had no idea that she was shot when she had a clear gunshot wound. And so they're like, we're going to need you to come down to the station with us, sir. And so they put him in the back of the cop car and asked him some questions while they were driving to the station. And he just 
kept bashing Bonnie. He's like, oh, I'm just mad at myself because I knew I knew this was going to happen someday. She just, you know, fucked so many guys over that one of them was going to get her one of these days. And oh, my God. Wow. Man. Yeah, she's involved in some, like, dark shit. I told her not to, but here we are. And, you know, actually, he says, she was actually almost killed before. In 1999, a John attempted to crash a car that they were driving in. And she said that it was some sort of, you know, so-called suicide pack. So maybe that guy came back after her. Who knows? This is not the first time that somebody has attempted to kill my wife. Yeah, including the time that I paid a stunt double. <laughs> I tried to I tried to pay a stunt double to kill her. Yeah, and I guess that this story did have some truth to it. Her sister did tell the authors, Dennis McDougall and Mary Murphy, that there was a guy named John Ray who was a legally blind business partner of Bonnie's that she married at some point. These are one of the 10 husbands while she was living in Memphis and that the suicide pact was not actually a suicide pact. It was an incident when Ray was sitting in the passenger seat as Bonnie was driving late one night. And apparently he grabbed the steering wheel and tried to run her off the road because he was angry with her for cheating on him. Yeah, that's a little different. A little different than a John. Like, like he made it sound like his name was John, but it wasn't like a John, like a client, you know? So, yeah, he just, like, the cops were immediately like, your wife just died, like, an hour and a half ago. And you are here trashing her, being like, yeah, it's probably one of those guys she scammed. So they're like, yeah, dude, you definitely are looking good for this. And so when they got to the station, Blake's attorney was waiting there and he was done talking. Unfortunately, Bonnie's loved ones had to find out about her murder on the news. Oh, no. Nobody called them. Or at least, I guess, the police were unable to call them before the media broke the news. So police, like I said, are completely immediately suspicious of Blake, but it did become clear that his gun was absolutely not the one used in the murder. And while he did have trace amounts of gunpowder residue on his clothing, which he alleged had gotten there from doing some target practice earlier that morning, he did not really have any on his hands. There was like a scant amount, but not the amount you would expect if if somebody had truly just shot a gun. And the murder weapon was found a couple days later in a dumpster near the scene. It ended up being a relatively rare gun. It was a German-made 9mm Walter P38 from World War II. It would have been cool if, well, not cool, but it would have been suspect if it was a Beretta. If it was a Beretta, yeah. Or I was waiting for it to be the 25 that he showed the stunt yeah. double. yeah. Yeah. But it it was not. But the serial number had been filed off exactly the way that he had said the other gun was untraceable because they had removed any characteristics that would help it be identified. And it had been coated with some sort of oily substance that made it impossible to lift fingerprints from. So weird. Like lube. Yeah. So Robert Blake had no such gun registered to his name. But earlier in the book, Blood Cold, as I was reading this, 
they mentioned actually that Robert Blake had commented when Christian Brando had killed that guy because it was all over the media. And they were talking about how if it was him, basically he was saying if it was me and I was like Marlon and I was trying to protect my kid, I would have like covered up the whole thing and gotten rid of the gun. And there was an actor on set with him who said, well, how would you do that? And he's like, oh, it's easy. Like, if you want to, like, make it hard for the cops to figure out who did it, you cover the gun in dog shit or red sauce, like red pasta sauce yeah. or something. You just goob it up so they can't get anything from it. And now here is this gun that was definitely the murder weapon being found coated in some oily substance, which they ended up believing later on was some sort of motor oil because motor oil was found on it a part of the exterior of the car on the outside. Gloves were also found in the dumpster as well as an empty water glass, which I think might have been the same type of water glasses from Vitello's potentially. It's in the People magazine show. The the attorney that later represents the family in the civil trial brings up this, this water glass as an important part of their theory. So they searched the Matahari Ranch where they discovered all of Bonnie's correspondences, naked pictures, like all of her cons and schemes, which, of course, Blake was only too happy oh my to God, give of them course. for evidence. They also did discover the pile of tapes of secretly recorded conversations. Now, on one of these secret recordings was a phone conversation between Bonnie and Christian Brando in which he was very upset and angry. Even though Bonnie had actually already done the DNA test, it appeared that she had kind of strung Christian along for a little while, being like, maybe it's yours. Who knows? And he, in this one conversation, got really fed up. And he's like, I know it's not mine. I know it's not my fucking kid. Stop saying that. Yeah. You know, it's Beretta's kid. And it's really pissing me off because I was actually excited, potentially, to be a dad. Yeah. And it hurt me. And so he was quoted, and they play the recording of this on the People show. It kind of hurt. You're lucky somebody doesn't put a bullet in your head, which is not a thing that people just throw around. No, especially when you've already gone to jail for killing someone with a bullet. For doing exactly that. Yeah. So, yeah, they're like, okay, we're going in a different direction. This guy got scammed. It actually wasn't his kid, and he's already killed somebody. So we're looking hard at him. But it turned out that it was very easily proven that he was in Washington at the time, which is miles and miles and miles away. So there was just no way that he pulled the trigger. Based on Bonnie's family's reports, the police also checked out henchman Earl Caldwell, but he turned out to be visiting a girlfriend in San Mateo, California, which is up near San Francisco, at the time of the murders, there was no way he physically pulled the trigger. Blake, through his attorneys and publicists, ran a total smear campaign on poor Bonnie. Oh, my God. It's bad. They published all the dirty details of her business dealings, along with, you know, records of all the men that she had conned and basically said to the media, I don't know why they're looking at Robert Blake for this when all of these men wanted her dead. Like, who didn't want this woman dead? They said there was no physical evidence tying Blake to the case at all, which was true. So they said, so where, what are the detectives 
basing this on if they're saying he did it. Like motive? There's a hundred guys who had motive for revenge on Bonnie. She was a scam artist. That's basically what they were saying in the media. And it got to the point where it was just a public victim shame fest where people, yeah, people who were like pundits and stuff were saying, like, I mean, nobody deserves to die. Certainly no one deserves to be murdered, but you put yourself in that position and why are you surprised, essentially? And like, like everybody was saying this. So the only thing the police really had against Robert were the testimonies of the two stuntmen who did eventually come forward. And they found a note at his ranch that said, I'm not going down, which was weird. <laughs> like, why write that out, bruh? And they also found records of him taking out $45,000 in cash over the two months before Bonnie was killed. Okay, collectively. Collectively, he had taken out little by little, which they thought was potentially a payoff for a hitman. He argued and his attorney argued in the press that actually that money had been earmarked for Bonnie to help her with her legal issues and some other things that she was dealing with. Despite this scant physical evidence, Blake was arrested on April 18th, 2002, and he was charged with the murder of his wife. Right. Yes. And in his arraignment, the state actually labeled Blake the trigger man himself. They decided that he had the time, he had the motive. He maybe never was able to hoodwink somebody into doing this, and he decided just to do it himself. I mean, good. Maybe that'll light a fire under his ass to, like, come clean of who did. Yes. Make a deal, yeah. In a press conference, the captain of the LAPD said, Robert Blake shot Bonnie Bakley. We believe his motive is that Robert Blake had contempt for Bonnie Bakley. He felt that he was trapped in a marriage that he wanted no part of. Robert Blake's trial began on December 20th, 2004, and it stretched on for three long months. The prosecution argued that Blake's contempt for Bonnie and anger at getting trapped in the marriage, as well as his desire to keep his daughter away from her mother, were strong motivations for the murder. They had witnesses from the restaurant testifying that no one had seen the gun he supposedly left behind, nor his return. And that gave Blake some 10 plus minutes at least to shoot Bonnie herself, dispose of the gun and the gloves in the nearby dumpster, rinse his hands with some water, and then go act his Golden Globe winning ass off. The two stuntmen testified for the prosecution, as well as Bonnie's friends and family who reported the threats that Blake had made to Bonnie that Bonnie had told them about, including the Arizona murder plot. Yep. The defense said, nope, no physical evidence whatsoever. There's no gunshot residue on his hands. There's no way you can trace the murder weapon to him in any capacity. They also went after the stuntmen's credibility because both stuntmen had had some mental health issues and addiction issues. So they were grilled on the stand about yeah. prior issues. And there was one guy, and I can't remember which one it was, but one of the stuntmen like after being, you know, cross-examined, admitted that maybe he had implied he would like his wife to die and wouldn't it be great if you could just do it for me? And like maybe Robert Blake didn't solicit him with serious intent. And it sounded like the guy was just kind of like beaten down on the stand, you know? On March 16th, 2005, after nine days of deliberation, Blake was found... Not guilty. Yeah, I'd imagine. 
There just was not enough there yeah. for the case. Yep. He was also found not guilty on two counts of solicitation of murder. So on the night that he was acquitted, a bunch of his fans got together to have a celebration party at none other than his favorite restaurant, Vitello's. Wow. So that same year, Bonnie's three eldest children filed a civil suit against Robert Blake, asserting that he was responsible for their mother's death. So this is some like OJ shit. Like it's like he got acquitted, but they're not done fighting. Eric Dubin, the attorney who represented the family, who is also on the People magazine show, said that Blake 100% did it. And he believed that he had essentially gone around the car with the actual murder weapon and kind of like crouched down because it was from where she was on the passenger side. You couldn't really see a lot. There wasn't like a house behind him. And then he kind of like put his gun through the open window and shot her twice, once in the neck and then in the temple. And then immediately after that, he uh, managed to cover the, the gun in oil, get rid of the gloves and the gun, and then rinsed his hand with water because they said that the gunpowder residue is kind of like sand. You can just, you don't need to like wash your hands with soap. If you get it wet, it will mostly come off. So he said that was his theory about how this happened. In what was described as a Perry Mason moment, Earl Caldwell's girlfriend admitted on the stand at the civil trial that she did believe that Blake and Caldwell were involved in the murder. So she was supposed to be for the defense. She was supposed to say, like, well, he was with me because apparently Earl Caldwell was named as a co-defendant in this. And instead, she's like, I have to admit, I do think they did something. Yeah. Now, Blake had been kept off the stand in the criminal trial, and that seemed like it was very much for the best because he blew it at the civil trial. He was hostile, aggressive, and threatening towards the attorney, Eric Dubin. Apparently, he was, like, so aggressive and was like, I'm going to fuck you up. I'm going to fuck your wife up. Like, he was threatening the guy's wife, like, while he was getting cross-examined. And it was a really bad look. The jury was horrified. So unlike the first trial where it was like a friendly old Beretta because he didn't take the stand. Yep. And which also Eric Dubin says on the show, he says, I think that he was acquitted. Yes, because there was a lot of reasonable doubt, of course, but also because people are much less likely to believe the guilt of somebody they know. Like, if it's a stranger, you're like, yeah, they did it. Screw them. But if it's somebody you know and you're familiar with and you like, you're like, "Ah, I don't know. I don't think they did it. And when somebody's famous, when you love their show, when you watch them, when you know them, you feel like you know them. And so he was like, are they really going to convict a guy on not that strong physical evidence and then go back and say, I put the Beretta guy, the little rascals guy away on little? No. So he said getting him on the stand and them seeing this jury, seeing the real him, the real crazy, threatening, mean old man was an eye opener. And this jury said, oh, yeah, that guy did it. He 100 percent for sure did it. And he is liable for the wrongful death of Bonnie Lee Bakley. So he was ordered to pay the three children, $30 million. Oh, He didn't have that amount of scratch, of course. 
So he filed for bankruptcy the following year, and the amount was reduced to $15 million in appeals court. Eventually, an undisclosed amount was awarded to Bonnie's three eldest children via a private settlement. So we don't know how much it was. Marjorie's on the show and she was like, they got ripped off. It was not enough. And it's like no amount's ever going to be enough, but it was really not enough. So little baby Rose was raised by her half-sister Delina and Delina's husband, Greg Hurwitz, who is a Harvard-educated best-selling author wow. and screenplay writer. Wow. They actually seemed like an amazing couple and an amazing set of parents for Rose. They formally adopted her. They consider her their daughter 100% completely in every way as she considers them her parents. And she said that she knows that her biological father, Robert, was in her life until she was about five years old. And then there was some sort of dispute between her parents and Robert. And at that point, they were like, you know what? We don't want him in your life. And so they became estranged for him. So Rose, like I said, is is on the People Magazine Investigates episode. And she's really pretty. She is poised. She's pretty collected for being so young. She looks very delicate. She looks, she reminds me kind of like Lily Collins, like Emily in Paris. She's very petite, dark hair, dark eyed. She definitely got the best of both of her parents. Like I see a lot of Robert Blake's coloring, but there's a sweetness to her face that's very bonny. So she said that her parents did everything they could to protect her from the media, to protect her from news of her, the whole sordid story, as well as to try to give her a normal upbringing in this Hollywood setting. But she always knew that something happened. And of course, these kids can find out anything. So she read all these horrible things about her mother and horrible things about her father, which was really hard for her. And she said at one point she was trying to be like a normal high school girl and she felt like she was living a double life. Like there was this whole different part of her. At 18 years old, she decided now she was legally adult to build a relationship with Robert, who was now 88 years old. Or I guess this was a couple years ago. So I think he was like 87 at the time. And she said on the show that they were slowly getting to know one another, but they were enjoying their time together. She said they just kind of talk about his past and his career and what she's doing in her life. And so far, the visits have been beneficial to her. At the time of the interview, Rose had not been in touch with any of Bonnie's side of the family, which Marjorie was really upset about. Because Marjorie did try, that's Bonnie's sister, she tried to fight for custody, but it was not granted. And so after they both did the People show, actually they connected and now they're in touch. And as far as the end of the People magazine show, they said that they were building a new relationship, which I hope they still are. Rose is an aspiring actress and influencer who is on Instagram as Rose Lenore. In 2017, Robert Blake married for the third time, this time to an actress named Pamela Hudek, who was 30 years his junior, and who very interestingly testified as a character witness for him in the murder trial. But their relationship didn't work out either. They divorced about a year and change after they were married. Marjorie's words in the close of the show I watched stuck with me. She said something along the lines of, Bonnie ended up loving Rose more than she loved fame. And she would have given up everything for her. 
I think she's referencing the fact that she was going to try to kidnap her and go back to Tennessee. Yeah. Whatever Bonnie did in her life, she did it to take care of herself and her family. And that's absolutely what I see in Bonnie is that maybe she made some really terrible decisions and she definitely shouldn't have scammed, especially elderly men. But I think that she was a survivor of incredible trauma to the likes most of us cannot imagine. And this was her way of surviving. Absolutely. Okay, so we do have a Wikipedia fun fact. Wikipedia fun fact. Quentin Tarantino apparently published a novel version, which was billed as a reimagining of his hit movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And he dedicated the novel version to Robert Blake. Quentin. You know, I was thinking of Quentin a lot during this story. When you talked about the ranch, when you talked about, like, there were a lot of things that I was like, oh, kind of sounds like a Tarantino movie. It does. Yeah. And he essentially was partially the inspiration behind Cliff Booth, Brad Pitt's stuntman character in the movie who is also accused of killing his wife. Yeah. Okay. And sorry, guys, spoilers. But in the movie, clearly Brad Pitt is a hero and you don't want to believe that he actually killed his wife. Yeah. And the question remains- It's also Brad Pitt, baby. (laughs) Love him. So, yeah, you don't want to believe that he actually killed his wife, but they always leave that question open. Yeah, yeah. And so in the novel version, apparently Quentin Tarantino went all in on he definitely killed his wife and he killed other people. Like, you know, the whole thing with the pit bull, like they said that in the book – he killed the guy because he was like putting the pit bull in a fighting ring and he was going to kill the pit bull for losing. So then the guy like, like Cliff killed him and then he had killed like 15 guys in world war two. Like it was like, it was a totally different version where you knew Cliff was a full on killer. Yeah. And he dedicated the book to Robert Blake. (sighs) So what do you think that means? Do you think that means Quentin Tarantino believed that Robert Blake did it? Yeah. I feel like Quentin loves little like, Easter eggs. Yeah. I mean, so to this day, technically, Bonnie's murder remains unsolved. Yeah. But I think he did it. Yeah. I mean, it could have been some random guy from her past, but they would have turned that up. I I mean, if I think if Robert Blake had that in his house, any evidence of her being threatened at all, he would have very happily handed it up. Wow. What a story. This is very once upon a time in Hollywood. It is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Once, Once Upon, upon a, a Time homicide. at Vitello's. I know. We have to look it up. Vitello's sound just sounds like somewhere that would be in a Tarantino movie too, you know? Like the whole thing. Yes. And there was also like kind of a throwaway line. I don't remember if it was in the show or the book, but somebody overheard Robert Blake meeting with the owner of Vitello's. And I guess the owner was like, I'm not going to lie for that fucking guy. I'm not going to do it. Because I think that he was trying to get either the owner or somebody to say that they saw him. Yeah, 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 of course. When he came back. And the owner was like, we're not going to do that. You got to be kidding me. But at least when the um, book was published, which was a while ago, it was published in the early 2000s because the trial hadn't even happened when this book was published. Yeah. They said he still had a meal, a dinner on the menu named for him. Like the Robert Blake 
dish. I was like, they had to take that off after, right? Yeah. Gosh, I hope so. Well, if we could ever go, maybe we'd find out. I I guess I could probably look up the menu online. (laughs) We should go. We should totally go. We should go. (laughs) Oh, man. Wow. Okay. And definitely, guys, I, I cannot believe this is my third California case in a row. We are out of California next week because I will be in California. Woo! And I will stop fantasizing it and choosing only California cases. (laughs) In conclusion, if you are going to try to kill your wife, why hire stuntmen that are connected to you and potentially look like you and also just anyone in Hollywood because y'all are some chatty mofos over there. You got to talk the walk, you know, you walk the talk. (laughs) Also though, like if you're going to actually outsource someone to do your dirty work, like hire someone that's got like a little bit of a stronger stomach than that guy. Like puking on the job. Yeah, I mean, he was a better call because he was a best friend. Best friends will do it and they'll keep it up. They'll lock it up, but not if they are a little pukey. No, indeed. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one's grandpa ends up losing all of his retirement money. Love you guys. Thank you you so much. Bye. Bye.